2: Hey, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
5: Hey, welcome back, everybody. As we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program, we're going to shift gears and go from talking about education to exploration with the uh, author of a, uh, a new book, and uh, it's called, let me make sure I've got this uh, right, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. It's uh, written by the uh, author of Supreme Power and Mutual Contempt, both selected as New York Times Notable Books of the Year. He's a former speechwriter for President Bill Clinton and a founding partner of West Wing Writers. His uh, name is Jeff Shezel, and he joins me uh, by phone. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. thanks for having me. Uh, did I say your name right? I'm terrible with names jeff
6: you're very very close, closer than most people get it Shessel.
5: <laughs> Shessel. okay
6: and i I, I, I want to ask you to repeat it yeah <laughs> I,
5: I will uh I, I will try and get that down by the end of our conversation but but uh before no, we worry. get in, before we get into the book and and i I do want to talk about the uh uh, this book, because it's it's a subject near and dear to my heart. I grew up with the uh, the space race. I was around when uh, John Glenn flew his flight in uh, his first flight. But I have to ask you about writing speeches for Bill Clinton. Were you instructed to write really long speeches, or did he add a lot? <laughs> <laughs>
6: We were instructed, or at least we we understood that we should write short speeches because he was going to add a lot. Um, One of my <laughs> colleagues always say, we give him Hemingway, he turns it into Faulkner. And so it, it does, as a speechwriter, it poses an interesting challenge to write for someone who you know can, uh, can uh, give an extemporaneous speech beautifully. So how do you build him a speech that's going to be useful to him, that does all the things you need it to do, but also recognizes that he's going to then go kind of do his thing with it and kind of create that, that magic that Bill Clinton can.
5: Yeah, he, and he had a way of uh, coining interesting phrases. I saw him speak in, uh, in Flint, Michigan, uh, uh, when Hillary Clinton was running for president, and um, he referred to her job at the State Department, um, as that traveling job.
6: (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's one I haven't heard from him, but he had this and has this deep reservoir of these Southern expressions that uh, were unfamiliar to those of us who are not from the South, not from Arkansas, and they would wind up, and he'd drop them into speeches and drop them into conversation and send us scrambling online to see if we could track down the phrase uh, to see whether he just might have made that one up, or was that a a familiar expression down south? Yeah,
5: it's probably a little of both. It probably had never been used to refer to a Secretary of State. Um, (laughs) Probably not. And and very quickly, before we get to the book, um, you're a founding partner of West Wing Writers. What is that?
6: We are a we call ourselves a strategic writing firm. We write speeches and op-eds and books and all manner of things. Um, the The short story is that there were three of us who were speechwriters for President Clinton together, and at the end of that administration, we kind of moved our corner of the speech writing shop into the private sector. And so we write for leaders in, in a whole range of different fields, and government and business and the nonprofit sector.
5: Yeah, see, I had, I had to read over that twice and think about it a little bit because I'm a huge fan of the uh, West Wing television show. <laughs> and so when I first As am read, I. <laughs> so when I first read that West Wing Writers, I went, oh, wow, you wrote for West Wing. Anyway. Um,
6: I, I'd love to claim credit for it, but I cannot. We did not write the, the, the TV show. But we did use to, to write in the West Wing, so we figured we could lay claim to the name that way. Um and uh you know we're, we're we're not there anymore but it's part of
5: our lineage oh i w- i wasn't questioning the uh authenticity or or wisdom oh, no, no. of using that title oh, of course. i'm i'm very easily confused <laughs> but but <laughs> let's let's talk about the uh about your book about the cold war first what was your interest in this subject how did that how did that come about and was that period of time that i remember the the space race if you will um being part of the cold war was it how, how much of it was exploration and how much much of it was competition
6: well it was really driven most of all by competition uh, there was of course a lot of interest in what we might discover in space but one of the interesting things that, that i found in working on this book is that actually the scientific community was was not particularly interested in human exploration of space. They thought it might be a, a waste of, of time and, and money. They were much more interested in what satellites could teach us or even landing robots on, on the moon and on Mars and some of the things that we, we have in fact come to do. They wanted to measure they wanted to learn about the magnetic fields around the earth. They wanted to understand Uh, meteorology, all of these things could be done and were done with satellites. But sending human beings into space, what's interesting about that is that this was kind of the dream of generations, and yet no one could really articulate why it was worth doing. Uh, There was difficulty in the scientific community, in the military, in the government, to explain exactly why we needed to go ahead and send human beings on top of rockets up into space to see what they could see. Uh, It was a mission in search of of a mission, in a sense.
5: And yet, when we landed man on the moon, as uh, uh, then-President JFK had challenged uh, NASA to do, um, that really did a lot for nasa's pr and public support and funding and and all kinds of other things is there maybe some some american uh drive to have man conquer stuff
6: absolutely absolutely and that was a a, a big uh a big driver of, of the space program I, it, it, in a sense, it, it, it was the equivalent, and this analogy was made at the time by one of President Kennedy's advisors and by a number of others. Uh, why do people climb the highest mountains? Uh, it's partly the challenge. It, it's, it's to, to prove that, that we can do it, to, to see what, what you can see from a unique vantage point. All of these things were, were big motivators in the, in the space program. But the main one, as, as you said a minute ago, was a Cold War. It was the competition with the Soviet Union. And one of the things that I've I've tried to express in this in this book is is that I think we, we think of the space race as, well, a race, as a, a competition who gets there first, that it was sort of symbolic, um uh maybe kind of sporting in a way. But this was understood at the time as an existential struggle that the, who if, as john kennedy said when he ran for president in nineteen sixty if the soviets control space they can control the earth there was a profound fear not just in the united states but across the free world that if the soviets had essentially uh, f- free freedom to maneuver in space without a sufficient challenge from the u-s that they were going to do things like build a floating space platform that essentially sat in orbit above the united states at all times and could drop nuclear missiles on the u.s. at at the slightest provocation or at no provocation there was serious talk and i do mean serious talk about the soviets building a nuclear base on the moon outside the range of of u.s. defenses and nobody really was able to explain why it would be easier to fire a, a missile from the moon onto new york or washington than it would be to fire one from say Siberia. But this possibility was taken very seriously, and the Soviets encouraged these kinds of fears. So the feeling on the part of, of John F. Kennedy was belatedly, um, after sort of ignoring the challenge for the first few months of his presidency, we absolutely had to get in the game in a meaningful way, or we were going to lose this this competition, um, and and the, the costs could could be enormous.
5: And Interestingly, after a period of time, the space race evolved into a a tremendous amount of global cooperation with regard to, well, the International Space Station, for example. Um, And and we're at a time now, because of the mothballing of the uh, shuttle program, we're literally looking to Russia to get rides to the space station
6: if you would have told somebody in the middle of the the space race of the 1960s that we would be relying on russian rockets to get up to the space station it would have absolutely boggled the, the mind but at the same time well, people would have put on foil hands <laughs> <laughs> yes they would have um and, and tuned into a, a very different frequency um Actually, the idea of cooperation in space was really interesting to, to John Kennedy. He understood that the space race had already, even by the time he got into office, the space race had been underway for, for a couple of years, and it had been incredibly expensive. It was going to be expensive going forward, and even more so if we went ahead and committed, as he did 60 years ago today, by the way, 60 years ago today, to, to sending Americans to the moon and bringing them back safely. And... While he understood, as I said a minute ago, he understood that we had to, to be in this competition and had to win this competition. He was very concerned about the, the costs. He was very concerned about the 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 taxpayer dollars that were gonna have to be invested in this and he was also concerned that all of the not all, but a great deal of the scientific and technological energy in the country was gonna go into the space program rather than into other areas that might actually have more practical benefits for people and so he was kind of intrigued by the idea of drawing the soviets into some cooperative venture in space it might have been going a little too far to say let's have a joint moon landing although some did kick around that idea but 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 kennedy did think well he didn't expect that this was all that likely to happen he did like the idea and even at his summit with Khrushchev in June of 1961 in Vienna, he even raised the idea with Khrushchev twice. And Khrushchev kind of treated it as as essentially a joke and said, you know, you Americans, you're, you're, you're wealthier than, than we are. You, you go ahead and do it on your own. Um, we're just poor Soviets. Uh, nobody really believed that, that that was Khrushchev's position.
5: (laughs) That doesn't sound like Khrushchev. Um, the name of the book is uh, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. It is uh, by Jeff Shessel. I think I said that right that time, did I?
6: You did. Thank you.
5: <laughs> Good. I, I, I may have it down by the uh, end of our conversation, but I do have to take a break <laughs> here. Um, Jeff, can you stick around for a few minutes? Because I want to talk some more about this. This is fascinating stuff. You bet. Thank you. Thank um, you. If you're listening to us on uh, 92.1 FM, WFOV, Our Voices Radio in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. Then we'll return to my conversation with uh, author Jeff Shessel right after this
3: everybody's
1: doing a brand new dance now
6: hi this is Mark Farner and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program mm-hmm.
1: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
5: And welcome back, everybody. We continue now with our conversation about a new book called "Mercury Rising: John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War" from uh, author Jeff Shessel, and he joins me uh, by phone. Jeff, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that.
6: <laughs> My pleasure. Glad to be here. Um, in the title,
5: you talk about the new battleground of the Cold War. Um, has space never not been a battleground in the Cold War? I, and I'm thinking of, you know, the Reagan era with, with Star Wars and, um, you know, now we've got China sending back pictures from its rover on Mars Um has space always been uh, competitive?
6: Space has always been competitive, although there are periods of time where it's, it's been more competitive uh, than others and also where that provokes more anxiety for, for various reasons than it might at, at other times in the 1960s as we were discussing earlier there was the sense that the soviets had this tremendous lead in space they had been first to do a whole range of things beginning with Sputnik in 1957 the first satellite and then the first animal in orbit and and a whole sequence of firsts and the feeling was that uh soviet domination of space was was uh, dangerous to not only our national security but to that of the entire free world. So it was a competition, it was a matter of national defense, and it felt very acute and very urgent. Uh, Later in the decade and and into the 1970s, um, while the Soviets continued to be active in space, there was a clear sense that the United States had had outdistanced the Soviets significantly. But but space has always been understood, uh, really since the late 1950s, to be an element in the national defense eisenhower had no interest in in sending human beings into space he grudgingly agreed to to let nasa when creating nasa in 1958 he grudgingly agreed to let nasa run the man in space program and and go ahead and see what it could do up there but he thought it was sort of silly and and wasn't committed to it what interested eisenhower in space was um, spy satellites uh, reconnaissance satellites he thought that Space could be really important in guarding against a surprise nuclear attack by the Soviet Union. And so even Eisenhower uh, understood early on, despite his sort of dismissal of the idea of the space race, understood early on that this could be very important to our national security. But I think we're in another one of those moments right now, as you've indicated. There's the sense that the United States has. slackened its its hold on the, on the heavens a little bit and while NASA continues to do wonderful fascinating exciting things scientifically as we're seeing right now on Mars with the helicopter and the, the rover that uh, when it comes uh, a, a bit closer to, to, to home uh, the the Chinese and the, the Russians and, and others are developing uh, what what are called counter space capabilities which is really the ability to Immobilize or even destroy the the satellite systems on which we rely for for just about everything from understanding the weather to uh controlling um our military technology
5: well and even uh, telecommunications and in um, uh, television
6: absolutely. Uh, communications and and um, all sorts of economic activity uh, rely on satellites, and so a vulnerability up there in orbit is is a vulnerability down here. And when we see uh, China landing, as you just mentioned, uh, landing its own um, uh, craft on on Mars, when we hear the Soviet—I'm uh, sorry—the the, the Chinese uh, plans to. Uh, land on the moon possibly as soon as, as next year, if, if those reports are to be believed. When you see that they are, are focused on uh, landing near the, the pole, the south pole of the moon, where there is a lot of water, ice, which could conceivably be turned into to fuel for further space exploration and so forth, then it, it starts to, to, to feel worrisome again, that this is not just a symbolic competition, but that there is a lot at stake in who dominates in space
5: now we've got people like Elon Musk and others uh, private entities getting involved in um, space travel if not exploration Um, what how does that fit into uh, all of this competition and is that distinctly American
6: Well, I, I think while well, there is a, a much greater degree of uh, private sector involvement in the space program uh, today than, than there ever has been, and and you see SpaceX, for example, being given the contract to 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 fly uh, folks to the moon, uh, at, at least in the in the first mission uh, of Artemis, the the new uh, lunar landing program. Uh, the private sector has always had a, a major role in in the, the the space efforts of the United States. I mean, NASA did not build those rockets itself. There were contractors. There were many other countries that built uh, many different components. You know, one company building the, the lunar lander and other, other companies building the guidance systems and other companies building the rockets themselves and so forth. And so there has always been a kind of harnessing of business and government together to varying degrees uh, to, to get these very, very big things done. But it, but it is clearly the case uh, that with the, the rise of SpaceX and to some extent Blue Origin and others that you are seeing the private sector really taking the lead. And at the same time, in parallel to what's what's going on uh, in, in NASA and with these programs that we've mentioned, you're seeing a, a new uh, effort to commercialize space and tourist trips around the Earth, or at least um, suborbital flights in the near future and so forth. So there's going to be a lot of commercial activity in space um, happening uh, really at the same time that NASA continues to pursue the kinds of goals that we associate with NASA, uh, sending uh, human beings into space and, and back to the moon.
5: What are the goals uh, of, of NASA these days, Jeff. Um, You know, we we hear about returning to the moon as preparation for perhaps a journey to Mars and outside of that we don't hear as much. Of course, a lot of things don't get the coverage they should.
6: Well, I think that's right. I I think NASA does a tremendous amount of science that does not kind of command the, the headlines. and. May not be um, seen by the uh, by the public, um, but NASA is, continues to be uh, the leading organization in the world in, in in space science and space technology. But it is challenged in all of these ways that we're discussing, from the security challenge. Uh, of China and Russia and others to uh, the uh, commercial uh, work being done uh, by companies like SpaceX that are in partnership with the government but also very much pursuing their own ends and may well be able to commit much much greater capital uh, to space exploration than the federal government has been able to muster for, the, for its own space program. When.
5: What got you interested in in um, looking at the the space race?
6: Well, I grew up in the in the seventies and eighties, and so I, I missed the big moments of of, of the first space race. Um, but they were recent enough that they they really still. Uh, loomed very large um, in the national consciousness and so I grew up reading these stories like a a lot of kids did and was fascinated by the astronauts and John Glenn in particular I I think even having been born uh, a little later it was clear what it must have been clear to to, to to those of you who, as you described, were were there at the time to witness all this, there was something about John Glenn. There was a quality to John Glenn. There was a charisma to him. He he seemed to to shine uh, at least a little bit brighter, probably a lot brighter than than a lot of the other the the other astronauts. And I came to understand that that really that Glenn's orbit around the Earth. He orbited three times on that flight in February 1962 he was the first american to orbit the earth that in many ways it was it was the emotional high point of the nineteen sixties of the kennedy years before in the years before apollo eleven and I, I wanted to understand why that was the case I mean, why was this particular flight such a big deal glenn wasn't the first american in space he was the first american to orbit the earth but not the first to go up into space alan shepard was was that was that person uh, Gus Grissom went after Shepard, and so Glenn was the third American in space. And by the time Glenn orbited, two two Russians had already had already done that. So why was this such a significant moment? And that drew me into the story to try to understand Glenn better and also to try to understand the significance of this flight. And I found that the the significance of the flight, as we've been discussing, really is wrapped up in the Cold War to a degree that I don't think most people understand.
5: And... That was, um, and and what, was that John Glenn's intention, or was he, uh, did he have a, a different agenda than maybe the people paying the bills?
6: Glenn more than... Uh than most of the other astronauts, I think with the exception of Scott Carpenter, um, who was actually the next to, to fly after Glenn, was the next to orbit the Earth. Glenn was really excited about, really interested in the scientific agenda in space. Uh, I mean, he was really fired up about this. He even, and this sounds obvious to us today, but it, it wasn't at the time, Glenn uh, was the was the first astronaut to, to bring a camera with him and to take pictures of, of what he was seeing while he was, while he was uh, flying. Uh, and we're so familiar with these photographs from space that you would think that that was part of the mission, but actually he had to, for a period of months, he had to argue the case that a camera was important to the mission and not just a distraction that was going to keep him from looking at the lights and the switches and the other things that he needed to be doing. He was really invested in that. But he also was a, was a cold warrior. Uh, one of the things that I think is not fully appreciated by Glenn about Glenn, because we really see him, of course, as, as an astronaut, is that he was a fighter pilot. He was a test pilot. And among the Mercury 7 astronauts, he was the most decorated combat veteran of all of them. And he was a fierce fighter pilot. Uh, in Korea, his wingman was a guy who I sure you've heard of a guy named Ted Williams who played left field for the Boston Red Sox that was Glenn's wingman in the Korean War and and years later looking back Ted Williams said about Glenn he said the man is crazy and when you <laughs> when you see the, the the films of Glenn the the kind of the sunny demeanor the the kind of aw demeanor you think well what could what could Williams possibly mean the man is crazy but Glenn was fierce i mean this was a guy who disobeyed orders to circle back and make a second attack on a target and wound up with a hole in the tail of his plane the size of a basketball. He actually managed to make it back to base and took pictures, there's one in my book, of of uh, Glenn saying that the tail of his plane it seems impossible that, that this thing made it back. But, I mean, this, this was a, a fierce fighter, and that's why he wound up becoming an astronaut, because he was... He was that that committed to to flight and to flight under extreme conditions, and also to the the Cold War mission of the program. He understood that it was important to score this significant victory against what he called the godless communists. And so, uh, while he was interested uh, absolutely in science, he also understood that this had had, had a very serious military implications.
5: When you look back at John Glenn, it's it's. Um difficult not to have his time in the Senate cast a shadow after the uh, the the fierce fighter Glenn. You know, he was a, a much more polished person as a senator and we tend to think, oh, that's the guy that went into space. But it was a different guy that went into space.
6: You know, one of the things that's so interesting about Glenn in the Senate and in his political career, his his uh, short ill fated run for president in 1984, is that while he was a very successful politician in a lot of ways, he he was he, he, he served longer than just about any senator in a, in Ohio history. He was around for for a very long time, um, and yet the charisma, the kind of energy, the the um, that the people had seen in him from his very first moments on the national stage. You didn't see so much in the U.S. Senate. He still had a certain kind of charisma, but he was a very serious-minded legislator, and he was not interested in flash. He was not interested in getting attention. He was not interested in standing in front of a microphone. I mean, this was a guy who had done all that. This was a guy who, after his, his flight around the world, he... Uh, Four million New Yorkers came out in the freezing cold to, uh, to cheer him on, to throw ticker tape. Uh, as, as one of the, the, the press wires described it, wild mob scenes. It was like, it was Elvis, it was the Beatles, it was the Pope. I mean, the, 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 the frenzy, the excitement about John Glenn was something that very few Americans in history had ever experienced. And so Glenn was such a grounded guy, He didn't he didn't need that. And so he was content to be, uh, 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 he was a dedicated senator, he worked extremely hard, um, but he was not a guy who, who needed the limelight.
5: The book, Mercury Rising, um, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War by Jeff Shessel, um, my guest today. Um, Jeff, the title of the book and the new battleground of the cold war is that a throwback to the the space race of the 60s or is there a new cold war emerging
6: well i think there is a new cold war emerging um the subtitle of the book the new battleground i'm referring to is from the perspective of the late 50s early 1960s when it was really brand new and john kennedy referred to it as a, both a battleground and a new arena and understood that that this if if the united states couldn't show its proficiency in space that that this could actually become another theater of war one in which the united states was at a, a tremendous disadvantage so that is the battleground that I'm referring to. But as we've been discussing, I, I think there are really direct echoes of that time in our own time. And uh, Bill Nelson, former senator who was uh, President Biden's choice for for NASA administrator, just had a hearing within the last couple of weeks in which he he held up twice over the course of this virtual hearing he held up pictures of the the Chinese lander on Mars and said. Look, this is this is what we're up against, and uh, as he put it, this is as as, um, as sure an indication uh, that we need to get off our duffs, is the way he put it, uh, as anything. Again, this this fear, this anxiety about a potentially hostile power, and their own uh, proficiency in space, is uh, a spur to our own. I, you know,
5: yeah. I, the, I'm I'm stuttering a little bit Jeff because I I'm thinking in two different directions. I'm curious about what Kennedy's interests were um in this if it, if this was all about uh American dominance of space and and American pride or if there was uh, an intellectual side to it that that um that wanted to to know what was out there. Uh, but also i'm i'm really curious about your thoughts on recent news accounts that the pentagon is uh starting to um admit to uh ufo's and possible visits from elsewhere
6: that is a a fascinating story as it's as it's unfolding and it will be uh uh, very interesting to see what it is that it, that is it soon released. Uh, the reports um, that are coming out. There's been a lot of discussion of this, as you mentioned. Um, you have current senators uh, getting into the game. Marco Rubio has been talking a lot about it. Former President Obama mentioned it the other day, and former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid uh, from from Nevada, of course, where a lot of this activity is said to have happened. Has been uh, very interested in this for for years. So there's going to be a yeah, lot of discussion of this going forward.
5: It's funny when you mention Harry Reid because he came dangerously close. It, it seemed like to having admitted to <laughs> having uh, had an abduction experience or something. I mean he he really <laughs> he really got into it.
6: Well, you know when these senators retire, they, they start opening up in surprising ways. I think. Um, <laughs> but but i want to i want to respond to your your first question tom about about jfk and what was motivating him uh, he was famously a, a deeply intellectually curious person one of the most intellectually curious people we've ever had in, in the oval office um and he was certainly interested in in what um what we could learn about space but as a matter of policy that was not a huge driver for him uh it was really the the cold war competition that we've been discussing with the soviet union and kennedy understood that um not only were there potential practical consequences of, of being second in space but as he said many many times during the 1960 campaign he, under- he 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 used this as a as a cudgel against uh vice president nixon his his republican opponent Kennedy said, if the United States is second in space, uh, we are going to be seen by the world as second in science and technology generally, second in military power, second in the struggle between freedom and totalitarian rule. He knew that the free world, there were, there were opinion polls being done. Gallup and others were doing opinion polls of our allies, West Germany, France, Britain, and, and found something that, that they called satellite pessimism. That because the Soviets had jumped ahead to this early lead and were holding it after Sputnik in space, there was a sense across our uh, allies that the United States was falling behind more broadly, both militarily and technologically. That what was happening in space wasn't its own thing happening in isolation, but it reflected a, a larger liability of the United States. And so Kennedy understood that he needed to not only close the missile gap, as he kept saying in 1960, it turned out that actually there wasn't a missile gap or that it actually favored the United States, but that we also needed to close the space gap for, for some of the same reasons. And there was clearly a space gap. I mean, it was very difficult to, to argue that the United States was competitive in space no matter how many meteorological satellites we were able to send up. The answer, a lot. We sent a lot of those up. But you talked earlier about some of the things that NASA does today that no one really notices. No one was paying attention to meteorological satellites when the Soviets were doing things like sending uh, the first human being into orbit around the Earth uh, in in April 61.
5: Well, unfortunately, Jeff, we have to uh, end it there. This conversation has gone so quickly, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. The book once again is uh, Mercury Rising. John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War by my guest Jeff Shessel. And um, Jeff, I, we just have a little less than a minute left, but I always like to give guests an opportunity where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website?
6: I do have a website. Um, it is Mercury Rising BK for book, MercuryRisingBK.com. You can find out uh, more about the book and a little bit about me, if that's interesting to folks, and and um, I'll be posting things uh, over the next uh, weeks and months um, as um, I continue to talk about the book and other things.
5: Well, Jeff, thanks so much for spending this time with me this morning. It's been uh, it's been fun.
6: Thank you, Tom. It's been fun for me too. Really appreciate it. All right. Take care.
5: Keep up the good work. Take care. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
3: Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every
1: time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out.
4: While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago
1: has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off, because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov agcomplaints for your connection
2: to consumer protection.
6: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
1: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Our tape is set up at an army base. We can't tell you exactly where for security reasons. We're going to speak to some of the men who are billeted at the base. Sir, may we speak to you? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, sure you uh, can. What do you want to say? Say it fast. Don't catch us. Uh, uh, sir, we were not going to say anything that will be against security. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> what do you do here at the base, sir? I'm an astronaut. Uh, are, you, are you, sir, one of the seven astronauts who have been chosen? That's shot- right. I'm one of the seven. They're going to shoot me out into, into space, into the blue. Now we're Up j- above buildings. <laughs> now, sir, just one moment. One moment. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. I, I sure. seem to have... I'm a little nervous. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my life. That's what You're I'm. Nervous. Nervous. Yeah. Well, sir, may I ask you something? Sure. I saw the pictures of the seven astronauts that appeared in Life okay, magazine. Oh, you saw those pictures, yeah. You are not among them. None of them are them. <laughs> I mean, those are not the real. No, those are models. You see, they. They can't take pictures of us. We're monkeys, man.
3: <laughs> what do you mean, you're monkeys? Well,
0: let me explain something. Those are seven handsome men. There's seven beautiful men. In life, As a matter of know. fact, one of them is very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Not <a> of <model>. you. <laughs> Not a seven guys, they're models, see? You mean they're not really No, flies? they're not really flies. they're models. They say Commander Robert L. Jones. That's not Commander Robert L. Jones. You are? That's Estelle Winwood. God knows who he is. <laughs> who knows who he is? You mean... But they're I... models. See, they're beautiful. They take pictures of them so that we're not ashamed for Russia to show such ugly little astronauts. <laughs> You're not a very good-looking man, No, it? I'm a monkey. I'm very close. To... I'll tell you why. I was just cleaning the latrine here at the base, see? Oh. And the general came in to to wash his hands, see? Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you look like a monkey. I said, thank you, sir. That's what you say to them when they insult you, see? Otherwise, now how do you? otherwise they stick their fingers in your nose and rip it off your face. They're tough. That's how you get to be a general. You're cruel and you're tough. Now, you sir, know a general pulled my tooth out once in on a parade ground, stuck his hand in my mouth, said, <laughs> said, here's your tooth, son. What?" And pulled it out of my mouth. You know why? What? Because I giggled. Yes. Uh, you don't giggle when a four star general moves. Now, on. sir, yeah. when are you going up into space? Uh, Thursday. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have told you that. Why not? Well, that's supposed to be a military secret. Oh, well. Forget uh, I said Tuesday. Say Tuesday. Tuesday. We're going up Tuesday. You're going up Tuesday. Twos- We're going up to space Tuesday, Tuesday right? Yeah. Tuesday about four o'clock. Actually, yeah. it's Thursday. Fine. Yeah. Well, sir, I don't think I should be hearing all this. Well, that's all right. Uh, I'm going to die anyway. I don't care. Sir, are you. You really. I haven't got a chance. <laughs> It's very cold up there, there have you ever been up on a test run yes they have a machine here at the base see and they strap you in the machine and they whirl you around for about uh three or four minutes that's all you can take and then you puke your guts out <laughs> it's a terrible machine see I it's a that... great machine i puke my guts out <laughs> <laughs> i can't take it i'm i'm nauseated three out of four hours in the day in your 24 hour cycle i would learn all that had to learn the cycle of the moon and sun. Do you know that the earth does not revolve around the sun? Wait a minute. I, it, wait, does. It, it does. It does, yeah. It does. Yeah, wait. The moon doesn't revolve no, around don't. the sun. No, sir, it Wait doesn't. a minute. We all revolve around the sun. sun. Now I'm a little disturbed. Sixteen out of nineteen people revolve around the sun. <laughs> <laughs> sir, I'm a little disturbed that they're sending you up to well, be the first man in space. You don't seem... You seem ill-equipped to be an astronaut. What do you mean? I got gloves and everything. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's I've electric. got a heavy fur hat. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> got bottles
3: and everything. Right. Excuse me, now I've got to get in the machine and puke my guts. I've <laughs> 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 been working with you yes. so long. You certainly discussed it. This was
0: another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
3: Ground control the to Major town. Check ignition and make God's love be with you. This is ground control the Major Tom. You really made the grade. If you dare This is major time to ground control I'm stepping through the door And I'm floating in the most peculiar way And the stars look very in Canada.
1: Time Summer Program.com